You are listening to Checkbox Outreach, a podcast that showcases excellence and raises awareness of current issues from those who are directly impacted, but typically not at the table. Now, here are your hosts, Aaliyah Gaskins and Katie Leonard. Hi, welcome to Checkbox Outreach. This is Katie. And this is Aaliyah. And we are excited to have you back for another episode. Today, we are speaking with Melanie Bates and really excited about this conversation. Melanie's here to talk to us about her views on how do we transform and reform our criminal justice system. I suspect we're going to touch on a range of issues from police shootings to mass incarceration to different legislation. So sit back, get ready. This is about to be a dope talk. And welcome, Melanie. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Katie and Leah. I'm really honored to be here, and I'm excited about the incredible work that you all are working on. Thank you. Melanie, I'm so excited. I think you're so intelligent, not because you have any initials after your name, but just your you know, your smarts and the way that you think. We, we met based on criminal justice reform conversations and reentry conversations, but how did your journey land you right here? Sure. So the topic of criminal justice reform is near and dear to my heart. Um, specifically police misconduct and mass incarceration. It is the reason why I became a lawyer. Um, The system affects the Black community more than any other race. And I always refer to the quote by Justice Thurgood Marshall, mere access to the courthouse doors does not by itself assure a proper functioning of the adversary process. And I strongly believe that poverty, lack of education, other social issues should not feed the pipeline to prison. And I really hope through my advocacy um, that we can alleviate the factors that force many people to become a part of the system. How did you become so passionate about these issues? Sure, sure. So I went to college at Hampton University um, down in the southeastern portion of Virginia. I studied marketing. Um, My father's an attorney, but I never really thought about law school before a personal experience that I had when I was a senior in college. Um, I don't talk about it often, and it's very small in the grand scheme of things compared to what everyone else in the world is is experiencing and has gone through. But for me, it really changed my path and trajectory. Um, I was out on a typical Friday evening with a group of girlfriends, um, some who I didn't really know before that night. They these women that I just mentioned that I didn't really know got into an altercation at the restaurant where we were. They were told to leave. Uh, we all left at the same time in the same car. They asked that we go back so they could retrieve their cell phones that they left in the restaurant. When As soon as we pulled up, two officers came up to the car on either side and said, turn off the engine. You all are under arrest for trespassing. What? I'm from Fairfax what? County. I'm sheltered, (laughs) never experienced anything in my life. So at that moment, I just kind of panicked. I freaked out. I was like, what are you talking about? I was never told to leave. I'm graduating next month. Officers started laughing. Um, We were arrested in front of the restaurant. Everyone was coming out looking. Um, I just broke down. So we were, yeah, in holding for, I think it was nine and a half hours, I remember. And I was the most terrified, traumatizing experience that I've ever been through you know, feeling like I was caged like an animal. It just really was um, was deep. And so sitting there thinking, okay, I'm a sheltered girl from Fairfax, never thought that this would touch me in any way, shape or form. And just looking around and seeing that everyone there crossed the hall from us were the, the men, everyone was black. Um, mm-hmm. And coming out of that and thinking, if this can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. So that really changed my view, my path. And it's really what um, led me 
to want to reform this and change it and really disrupt the system. I can speak to the point where you're like, you, your experience doesn't compare to others. I violated a township ordinance and spent six hours in a holding cell handcuffed to a bench. And so I don't, you know, the people that I work with now, the formerly incarcerated people, I don't like to tell the story because it's kind of a slap in the face or they laugh at me like, please, Katie, go away with your six hour jail stint, you know, but right, it's still right, powerful. Right. I mean, it's still, you're still in culture shock. And when you look at younger people that have to experience that and what that looks like. And for me, I had the resources. So I had a family who I paid attorney's fees. That's a huge impediment to a lot of people and then just sets them up for failure over and over again. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think what comes through from both of your stories is that even if you've only had a few hours of contact with our justice system or decades of it, I think each of us can see that there are areas that need to be improved. And I love what you said, Melanie, about that we need to disrupt, that we need to change the whole system. Given your work and the things that you've been advocating for over the past several years, like what are some of those disruptions that need to happen in our criminal justice system? For me, I think more conversations like we're having now, I love the fact that you have um, made a conscious and intentional effort to reach out to people who've been directly impacted. Um, I think their stories are the most powerful. They're the ones who are going to lead the charge um, in changing the system. And I think every single conversation about reform must include someone who has that direct experience, who's been behind those walls, who knows what it is day in, day out to survive um, in that environment. So I really think that's where it starts. So when you talk about reform, Melanie, in because it's such a broad area, right? And we know there are so many touch points that interventions need to take place. When you're talking about reform with the work that you are doing with your legal background, what does that look like in your, in your realm? The point of arrest to coming home um, I think starting out, um, I, I own a consultancy called Melanie Bates Consulting, and one of the services that we offer is called Know Your Rights Sessions. So we go around to different organizations and schools um, and community groups and conduct sessions um, that teach youth in the community their rights if they ever find themselves in an encounter with the police. Um, we don't teach this in school, so people don't know that they have the right to remain silent. They can say, officer, I wish to remain silent. They can say, officer, I don't consent to searches. They can ask for a lawyer. They can ask if they're free to go. So we do this in a safe space where we talk about our real fears that we have um, with police. We talk about the rights that they have. We practice the role play. Um, and we go through this so if and when they are in a situation, they're comfortable enough to assert their rights. And we know, we very well know that this may not help um, in every situation, but I really do believe that knowledge is power um, and will help us for that segment. And I think for coming home, making sure um, that persons who are directly impacted and returning to their communities have the support that they need. There's so many incredible organizations out here, especially in D.C., who are doing yeoman's work on, on getting people um, the resources they need and support they need to, to be successful. Um, and I think um, advocating with the policymakers and, and having those discussions at the table to fund these organizations. I mean, these organizations are a mass caseload with thousands and thousands of people, but we often find that they don't have enough money. We don't have enough money to get people on their IDs, to get people basic needs that they need to move forward. So I really think the community being aware of what the need is and making sure that they communicate with their legislatures about what change needs to happen. 
So one of the things that struck me when you reached out was you talked about the need for greater transparency and accountability within our system. And I think, you know, we can't have this conversation without talking about the recent events around the killing of Ahmad Aubrey, um, the 25-year-old who was shot and killed in Georgia. There's this quote that's been going around, I think I've seen it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram around how they didn't make an arrest because they saw the tape, but they made an arrest because we saw the tape. And that just struck with me over and over and over. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about in the context and the current situation we're in, like what is it gonna take to produce greater accountability from our criminal justice system and create a system that actually serves all people? Yeah, exactly. You said serves. I mean, our taxpayers are paying the law enforcement agencies to serve all people, not just their friends. And I really think um, it starts like you said, they, they, they move forward because the public saw it. Anytime there is a police-involved shooting or killing, it needs to be an independent investigation, separate and apart from the entity that's being um, looked at. Because without that, there's going to be that bias. There's going to be that analysis that's skewed towards, towards their friends. And unless we get someone with fresh eyes, with no connection, I don't think that that accountability and transparency um, can happen to the full extent. Every single time we hear a case, the officer's defenses, I feared for my life. Those five words are routinely used um, as justification for slaughtering innocent citizens. And I think um, it, this proves that the law does not adequately protect Blacks and, and people of color and the people that we, we see that are routinely killed by the police. Um, and so I think that we have to start there. We have to have independent investigations. We have to have investigations that really hold these officers accountable. If not, it will keep happening. What we really your... have to show... Yeah, Go your experience. And I'm so glad you have the legal background because I always go, you know, get on these rants and I get so outraged and it's like always, oh, well, the law says X or the law says Y. So therefore you can't do that. And so I'm a huge proponent of people getting involved at the local level. Can you speak a little bit on the importance of your voting locally for your district attorney and your sheriff, like what are those implications for policing in our communities? Those implications are huge. Um, I always talk about the quote from Thomas Jefferson, the government closest to the people serves the people best. I mean, the people who are closest to us, those local elections matter more than we know. Um, they really are the players who are moving the pieces, who are deciding what cases get looked at, who are deciding what is released to the public. So I really think it's, it's critical that our people show up to vote and really research and investigate that person's background. Just because they look like you, just because they went to your same school or just because they're they're from your same block does not mean that yes. they have your best interest at yes. heart. So when I you're really doing that investigation, uh -huh. can you maybe share, like what are some questions or things you should be thinking about as you're reviewing a candidate? Um, if, if it's available, which it should be, I would look at prior criminal justice legislation or legislation on an issue that you're passionate about. Look in the record and see um, if that person has already been in office. How did they vote before? If they haven't been in office, what, what does it say on their campaign literature about that issue? Um, if you go to a town hall, ask them pointed specific questions and, and don't stop until you get a specific response. I think it's easy um, for politicians at times to give a general, well, you know, I care about that and I'd make sure that it wouldn't happen again, but how? What are the real life steps that you're going to take to make sure that there's change on that issue? I think that's that's critical. Um, and especially if they're already in office, there, there's a, a wealth of resources where you can go to see how do they vote on things what bills did they sponsor? What bills did they co-sponsor? You can even watch prior hearings. I know for the DC Council, they have a archive of all prior hearings um, on legislation and committee meetings. So you can see 
what did that person actually say? Wow. That's, I mean, and even that information, that's information we don't have. And I feel like a lot of times people are dissuaded or, you know, they just are afraid to go to that town hall. Like, what am I going to say? And I still, as many public speaking events that I've done, as many presentations as I've given, when I'm in that context, I still get nervous, right? Like my palms will sweat, my armpits will start sweating. So just having the information of like where to go, what information to have to arm yourself with when you go to those town halls or to those public meetings, I think is so powerful. I tell the clients that I work with, I do offer um, legislative and government relations training through the consultancy. And I always tell them that unless we're there, things won't be effective because a yeah. lot of the council members, a lot of the people in office have not been touched by the same issues um, that we have. You know, people don't wake up being black. Like after the the recent shooting that we discussed earlier, the next time I went on a run, I was actually nervous. I was looking around and mm -hmm. seeing, you know, crossing the street, seeing different cars. So they need our firsthand experiences to, to make this legislation. They need those stories to go in the committee committee reports to justify. They need evidence-based reasons and data to back these policies. So without our story, it's not going to work. So I really think um, it's, it's imperative to take the time to go down there um, and testify. And if you get nervous, you don't want to be on camera, you can write a letter. You can request a private meeting with the council member or their staffers. There's so many ways to get your testimony out there, and it's critical in order to effectuate change. Sometimes we, you know, I think it's easy for us to think, okay, well, that's not my issue, so I don't have to pay attention. But we forget, mm -hmm. like, these issues are so interconnected, and also just the impact it has on us mentally and physically. I mean, what you said about being a runner and now being afraid to go out. I know my husband runs in our neighborhood all the time and he runs with this weight vest on that looks like a bulletproof jacket, like mm. one of these 50 cent from the 90s type look. And <laughs> yeah. I told him the other day, I was like, you need to take that off. And he's like, why? I was like, I just, I was like, I just can't, I am not comfortable with you running with that. I was like, it literally looks like you have on a bulletproof vest running in circles around our neighborhood. I was like, there has to be a way that either it's under your shirt or it's just not on because you never know like what people may think they see. And I was like, you being a tall, big black man, it's just not, it's just not okay right now. And we had to have a real serious talk about that. And something I wasn't prepared to talk about or even knew the right thing to say. Um, and I think it just, it just hit me how much like that incident or this continued conversation and the fear that comes up stays with us, even when we're not the ones directly impacted. It goes to that social problem that we are the other, right? And so even in, I have a friend, a black family that lives in Leah's neighborhood. And when the son was in middle school or junior high, he came home and he forgot his key. And so he was just sitting outside um. on the step waiting for his mom to come let him in. And the police were called on him at his own home. And so we're, right. you know, fighting this battle of being like, no, we literally live here. Like, the threat that we afford the same house and the same type of cars and the same have the same lifestyle as, you know, white America is sometimes, I think, part of the problem. They just can't picture us as being their neighbors sometimes. 
And that's upsetting. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the, you know, it's problematic for sure. It's very upsetting. And those are the stories that, that the legislatures need to hear. I remember when I first started driving, my mom told me if I ever got pulled over, I was to ask the officer before I opened my glove compartment to get my registration out. You know, I was told to leave my hands on the steering wheel and look at them as they were speaking to me. And these conversations are not happening in all households. So I really think that these anecdote stories are powerful. Um, it's just disappointing and sad that we have to have them. Um, but I think it's critical that that the masses know. Melanie, who have you yeah. found to be some of the most like unlikely allies in your work? Hmm, that's a good question. I think I think now criminal justice reform has kind of a national spotlight. When I first got into the work, it really, it wasn't quote unquote cool. Um, Now I think everyone is aware. Um, The Koch brothers have invested. um, There are a lot of people who are interested in this, on these efforts um, for various different reasons, but I think it's really um, amazing to see um, both sides of the aisle coming together and really unifying to try to make change. I recently watched a documentary Kim Kardashian did Um, on three different persons who had sentences and had different backgrounds and shed light on their stories and really humanized them. Um, And I really thought that was powerful for people who aren't aware of what's going on. That was kind of a primer, a one-on-one to see, look, people every day are struggling for their lives. They're behind these walls, they're suffering, and they're there because of what happened in their past. You know, people aren't just bad because they want to be bad. Things have happened in our lives that have led us on certain paths. So I think the awareness across the board, I think is really, really um, inspiring. And it gives me hope that that change is on the horizon. Did you struggle a little bit? I know for me with the Koch brothers on so many other fronts, it seems like, and even current policies right now, federal policies, when you look at, you know, what they're trying to advocate for, for second chances, criminal justice reform, but then supporting other policies that completely maybe I'm I'm going to say intentionally wipe out those efforts. So even when you look at the PPP funding and the SBA loans and how people with criminal histories weren't quali- or couldn't qualify for those, you know, it's like you're undoing. It's like one step forward, eight steps back. Did you struggle with that at yeah. all? Like with some of those other groups that that on one front they, you know, their some of their policies for lower income black and brown communities are in direct opposition to what they're doing in the criminal justice space? I do. I do struggle with that. I think um, sometimes we have to take any progress. Yeah. Um, and I know it's hard hard to see, but I think what you all are doing, um, Katie and Aaliyah, is really powerful and instrumental. So calling those things out, like, look, this segment of the population was not eligible for the funding. I don't know if you know it was intentional or what, but I think this underscores the need for people who've been directly impacted to be at these tables. Because these omissions and these things that are happening, we have to keep going. We have to keep um, it at the forefront. We have to constantly say what's needed and hold people accountable and call them out on it. So I really, really think this just circles back to to the purpose of this um, podcast and your efforts. I really think um, we have to keep calling people out. We have to keep holding people accountable and, and keep bringing this up to the forefront. People get pissed off at me a lot because I appreciate Ban the Box. I appreciate the initiative. But the back end mm-hmm. implications of the discrimination to where now when a black or brown man walks to the door, that employer just automatically assumes they have a criminal history. And so right. between that and the fact the background check is still going to get run. If you're applying for a finance job at a bank or with a company and you have a DUI, there should be a system where that DUI chart, you never see the DUI because it's not directly related. 
You know, if like you could check right. a box of different areas that would impact that job, then I get that. But if you don't have a crime that is directly related to the work you're doing, it it's so unfortunate that people can't get their foot in the door and there's not, it doesn't even match. Exactly. I mean, that, that's a huge point. And I know DC is, is seeing that um, now. The Office of Human Rights is the agency that's um, charged with overseeing the ban the box legislation. It went into effect in the city in 2014. Um, and a lot of people have filed complaints um, about it not um, being abided by. And I know that there, at least the last time I checked, there was a huge backlog. So people are frustrated and they don't even believe in the legislation that's being passed. So that's a huge point. Um, and I think once we pass legislation, there has to be follow-up, there has to be task force, there has to be reporting mm-hmm. to make sure that it's being implemented in the way that it was intended to. Um, I think ban the box is a great first step, but it doesn't stop there. Like you said, it's gonna get run. Um, I think in the DC version, um, businesses are required to provide some type of justification letter. If they do uh, rescind an offer, they have to say that it it was it violated some business purpose or because um, someone applied to be a teller at a bank, they were convicted of a robbery, therefore I should not be compelled to hire them. So there has to be a direct correlation between the history and the job. But like you're saying, if there's no relation, if it's a DUI, D, whatever, that should not be um, a hindrance. So again, I think there has to be follow-up we have to hold them to task. We have to go down to the city council and in these different buildings and, and really um, make the voice heard. But yeah, it's frustrating. It really and is. Melanie, um, I know a huge piece of your work has centered around advocacy. I'm curious, yeah. is there a particular like piece of legislation that's in the works right now that you're excited about or something that recently passed that you know you are just really proud of? If you could talk a little bit about that legislation and the impact it could potentially have for our community. Sure. Um, in D.C., um, they passed something called the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act, which looked at juveniles, um, young people who were charged as adults who were given life sentences. And they're reviewing um, those convictions to bring people home. I um, mean, right now, I think about 40 people have been brought home under that legislation. And so they're looking at different versions to extend the age. I believe the initial legislation was 16 or 17, um, but now they're looking to extend it up so you could be older um, with that sentence and, and still be brought home. So I really think that's monumental. It's really paving the way for a national model um, on this issue. Um, and so advocacy around that is strong. There are a lot of um, nonprofit organizations in the city who've come together to advocate um, for that legislation. And I think the results um, are impeccable. Everyone who's come home, no one has reoffended. Um, a lot of people are starting their own businesses and, and, and advocating for this very issue. So I think measures like that that have a tremendous impact on individuals' lives, I think, should be celebrated and should be used um, as a national model. So the second or third version, I believe, um, is still under consideration now by the committee. So hopefully that new version will pass soon so we can bring more people home. That's on the policy level. What about you personally, right? Like, I feel like a lot of times we're in this space, we're in the thick of it, and we don't celebrate our own wins. We don't pat ourselves on the back, or we're taught that we shouldn't celebrate our own wins, and we need to minimize ourselves or make ourselves small. So what are some things where you're like, yeah, I did that, right? Like, I crushed that. Like, what are some of your own (laughs) successes or victories? Um, I struggle with exactly with what you explain, Katie, all the time. Um, Well, I'll clap for for you, so pick one, and let's do it. Let's go. (laughs) Um... I guess I think starting my business was really huge for me because I guess I reversed, I think what they say. I started it in September 2017. I was working full time and I didn't leave my full time job until December 2018. Um, So 
taking that risk and believing in myself to know that I could be sustainable um, without full-time work was really empowering to me. And looking back and seeing before when I was struggling, counting every penny, you know, having to call home, having yeah. to get help with bills. <laughs> and then now to be in a situation where I'm, you know, self-sufficient, um, it really, and to know it was because of my own efforts is really heartwarming to me. And it just fuels me to move forward. Um, but everything I do is mission driven. And I really believe that I'm doing this work for the greater good and not for myself. So I don't like to to tout or I, it's really even hard for me to even choose an accomplishment, but um, I'm proud of the work that I've done in the sense that it's allowed me to really be true to my mission and what I believe my purpose is. So that's what I would say. I love it. I love it. I was just about to say, when we started, you said that this is going to be a conversation celebrating Black girl magic. And so I'm so glad we get to end on your accomplishments. And I know if we had more time, Katie and I would make you share more than one um, because you are amazing. And this has been an amazing conversation. If our listeners want to continue to connect with you or learn more about your perspective on these issues, how can they connect with you? Sure. My website is MelanieBates.net um, and I'm on social media at, at MelanieBatesLLC. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. This has been amazing. You motivate and inspire me. I'm, I kind of want to go to law school right now and be like, I want to be able to quote these <laughs> <laughs> I got to do No, Katie, we're not going back for I more know. degrees. No, 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 Instead, no, no. we're just going to partner with Melanie yes, yes, and let indeed. Melanie bring her expertise. Indeed. Indeed. Well, thanks so much. This was so awesome. Thank you for having me. Keep up the good work and kudos to you all. I'm really proud of you. Thanks, Thanks, Melanie. It's time for action. Checkbox Outreach is more than a podcast and simply putting a check in a box. This is about impact and moving the needle. Aaliyah and Katie, what are the next steps? Katie, can I just say how lucky I feel to know you and then as a result, get to know all of your amazing friends. <laughs> I feel like this conversation with Melanie was mind blowing and so timely given everything going on in our country. And I feel like I am just left with so many thoughts about criminal justice reform, about black girl magic, just I'm just so hyped, so excited. So I want to start with you this time. Like, What were some of your key takeaways from the conversation? So I'll go into my key takeaways, and then I'm going to go into how Melanie's a rock star. So first and foremost, key takeaway is really talking about the school-to-prison pipeline. There is so much intersectionality when we talk about community development and community investment and what that means in terms of education, how that impacts people and whether or not they end up incarcerated or not. The other thing to mention is overall criminal justice reform. And in the conversation of what we're talking about today, police reform is just a small piece of that and policing communities and what are those impacts in the broader system as it relates to even mass incarceration. The other thing was really looking at our local elections, our legislative policies, our legislative agendas, and how that impacts our everyday life and how people can really get engaged and be informed to make really smart decisions in the polling booth when they go. Yeah, I want to emphasize what you said about voting in local elections, because I feel like we cannot say it enough. Right now, I think everyone is thinking about the upcoming presidential election. And you're hearing a lot of people say we've got to get folks out to vote. And that is critical. But we can't ignore what's happening at the local level. You know, I was just thinking about 
even if we're talking about if we just narrow it down to criminal justice reform and law enforcement activities, your local offices have a lot of influence on how public safety is carried out in your community. Your mayor might be responsible for appointing the chief of police, your sheriff. In many cases, the sheriff is an elected position and they are responsible for enforcing the law and making decisions about how the law is carried out in your community. You have district attorneys who I think they can be elected or appointed, but they have a huge role in deciding when an arrest leads to a charge. At the state level, your state legislators, they enact policies every single session that influence what constitutes a crime. They also have a big role over funding for agencies that deal with offenders and agencies that deal with victims. And to take what you said, if we're not just talking about you know, it in terms of policing, they also have influence over funding for education systems, for our mental health, behavioral health, public health systems. And so I think paying attention to all of that is really important. I mean, even if you just look at what's happening locally here in Alexandria, our city council, I think it was council member Mo Selfadine, he just introduced a resolution that signals the council's intent to create a um, police review board. In Minneapolis, you had the city council that they recently made a decision to disband the police department and replace it with a new system for public safety. In San Francisco, you have Mayor London Breed, who just um, proposed a number of different... She's a rock star. Can we just take a second to just uh, Please admire... tell me you watched the Mayors Who Matter special on CNN the other day. No, I don't watch London. TV like that. But So you can just give me the recap. But I think she is a phenomenal human being and an amazing woman who does not get the credit that she deserves just for being that game changer in her work and what she says. Just her overall presence is, I just, I'm obsessed with her. I could not agree more. I'm obsessed with her and then Mayor Lightford in Chicago. Um, (laughs) But, you know, people don't often think of the role mayors play in these conversations. And she, I think it was yesterday, just came out with a whole series of proposals for, um, banning tear gas, for um, having, I think, professionals like mental health professionals responding to non-criminal calls, for other things around how do we transform funding to better respond to COVID-19. So I say all of this, like, folks, you got to pay attention. You got to pay attention to what's happening politically at the local level, because these decisions are being made rapidly and have a huge impact on your quality of life. Yeah. And the guidance comes from the federal level in many cases, though. So going back to why I think Melanie is awesome, I reached out to her a couple of days ago to saying we wanted to re-record our back end piece of the episode because we recorded this episode right when Ahmaud Aubrey had just been murdered and George Floyd had not been killed yet and the protests had not happened. And so since then, just so much has come about. We weren't really having the defund the police conversations when we talked to Melanie. We should have been, but we weren't. It's It speaks to her because she just was more than willing to give some great information. So I want to point out she wanted me to share the H.R. 7120 Justice and Policing Act of 2020. It's a bill right now that's addressing a wide range of policies. It's looking at the use of force. It's looking at limiting qualified immunity for police officers. It's authorizing the DOJ to issue subpoenas to investigate police departments for discrimination and 
discriminatory practices. It also is creating a national registry for police misconduct. And that's powerful because what we're seeing is a lot of police officers are jumping from police department to police department because they've had a lot of incidents of misconduct in their former roles. And so having a database where this is captured and tracked is really, really important. The other thing that I really like is something that we've talked about with Ariel Guerrero is this is requiring implicit bias and racial profiling and racism training for police officers. And that's huge, right? And so when we talk about implicit bias, I think that's one of the themes of our of our show here is that, you know, we all have it and it's something that we need to address that we have and address how that impacts our decision making and the actions that we take on other people. Melanie also brought up um, in DC, the B230774 Comprehensive Policing and Justice Reform Emergency Amendment Act of 2020. Check that out. That's a DC issue. City of Alexandria, like you said, is looking at developing this review board. And so the things are happening locally, but the federal policy a lot of times will dictate the way that funding, where funding goes. And so it's important to follow the trail of funding, follow the money to see what policies, practices, and procedures are being implemented at the local level. What Melanie emphasized in her conversation and what comes through in the piece of legislation that you just described is that these efforts need to be comprehensive. So we're not just talking about training, but we're also talking about training in addition to how things are funded. We're talking about policy changes. And so all of these pieces have to come together to really make up what we mean by comprehensive reform. Another takeaway that I want to make sure we don't miss, uh, because like you said, when we recorded this, we were just talking about Ahmaud Aubrey. And since then, a lot has happened from the murder of George Floyd to just this past weekend, um, Rashad Brooks in Atlanta. And these images and these conversations can be really triggering for folks in the Black community. And I think sometimes we forget that there are mental health, like real serious mental health consequences and implications for what's happening in our country and the impacts of racism that don't just go away when we turn off the TV or stop Stop watching the news. Does it matter if you had a direct connection to one of the victims or you knew their family? It's you feel a part of them because of our skin color, because of our shared experiences and our lived understanding of what it means to be black in this country. And so I just I just want to take a moment to put it out there that like yeah, many sure. folks are hurting right now. And I don't think we always want to acknowledge that. I think we want to avoid the tough conversations versus acknowledging the real hurt and pain that is going on in so many individuals and so many communities. And I just think of action steps to take. I look at criminal justice reform and it's such almost, I hate to say this, it sounds horrible, but it's a small piece of this very massive issue of the injustice that black and brown communities face and disproportionate impacts. And so when you look at it in terms of next steps, I think that people should address this as a system or a part of a system. And in getting involved, you have to understand the full dynamic. The other thing for next steps in looking at the police reform and looking at defund the police, and I guess actually getting clear on what defund the police really means to me, a lot of it became apparent when people were seeing that in many cases our police forces had tanks and full riot gear to go into very minor situations. And so the conversation of looking at police budgets 
and the reallocation of that money to go into, like you said, the mental health providers to be on site if there's an emergency or the social service programs that could prevent people from getting into those situations to begin with. That's what defund the police means. Yeah, I did. Um, I started doing some research on how did the defund the police movement begin? Where did it start? And I was surprised to find that it actually like the conversation started as far back as um, conversations around the death of Michael Brown and when he was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. And it was this conversation around, you know, our police budgets are expanding and expanding and expanding. At the same time, there's been cuts to housing, education, social services, mental health, and some of the things we've just talked about. And so what would it look like to actually cut some of those police budgets and begin to transition and reallocate funds to other social services to, like you said, begin to do more comprehensive reform and create a system that really supports people from the very beginning, you know, from childcare and pre-K services. What ends up happening is these situations is that note for comprehensive reform and that push gets lost in the conversation about just narrowing it down to, do we have bad cops or good cops or how do we, you know, improve our public safety? And so I think really keeping that on the forefront, whether you support the movement or not for defunding the police, I think you should be asking the question of, do we adequately fund education? Do we adequately fund health care? Do we adequately fund infrastructure and transportation and housing and the things that we know people need in order to survive and have a basic quality of life? It's like being set up for failure, right? Like set up for to fall and to crash and burn. And so the importance I think here from this conversation is educate yourself on all of these impacts, right? What leads up to the disproportionate impacts? When we look at even in the Commonwealth of Virginia, when we look at the black population being 20% of the state population, yet making up 53% of the prison population. And so the disproportionality there is not just from, you could say, policing, or police reform is not going to solve that problem of that disproportionate impact. And so we have to be addressing all of these different issues that are leading people to either a route of incarceration or a route of success. And the education and familiarizing yourself with the the community impacts, the community implications, and then who, like you said, going back to the very beginning, who is in power, who is making the decisions, because those are many times elected positions. Educate yourself, find out the issues, just like Melanie highlighted in the in the show, and make an informed choice in the voting booth. The other piece that I do want to give another plug for what Melanie is doing know your rights. Like she's doing the workshops of knowing how to interact with a police officer. If you do get pulled over, it's very, very important. I always say, and this is unfortunate when I've seen people go into court without attorneys, they get screwed almost every time, but who can afford an attorney all the time? And so just so many different levels. The first direction I would advise people to go is educate yourself first, hold your elected officials accountable, and then make informed decisions on whether or not those elected officials need to find a new job. Yeah, I would just emphasize the importance of educating yourself. I feel like there is no excuse for people who say, I don't know where to start. There's so much out there. I mean, even I was telling you, Ben and Jerry's has a 101 on like how we got to this point, beginning in 1619 with slavery, going into Jim Crow laws, the black codes, redlining, school to prison pipeline. Like if the ice cream shop 
can come out with a workbook on how to educate yourself. I think there's no excuse why you can't Google and find something to read about what's happening in your community and what's happening nationally around these conversations. So I feel like we should have started. I agree. (laughs) Number one takeaway is go get informed. Um, Second, I agree with you. Vote, vote, vote. And then lastly, I would just say um, we ended the show celebrating Melanie. And I want to take time to just talk about how important that is. Oftentimes we are so busy or we just think, you know, we're just doing the work we were called to do that we don't take the time to really lift up the wins we have and the magic and the presence and the amazingness that we bring to the space. So I just want to say, if you're in this work, if you're in this fight, take the time to just embrace you and to engage in self-care, self-preservation, whatever you want to call it, you are doing good work and we need you for this fight and so I just say thank you to Melanie thank you for being you and for all that you do yeah and I also forgot to mention does she not sound like Michelle Obama when she talks I think people should just hire her and bring her on board just to actually hear that and have that calming and soothing voice and just what she brings to the table and her passion just hire her work with her she's phenomenal absolutely i think we should go sign up for a know your right session so that we Let's can do spend it. more time with, with ben her. and jerry's my treat <laughs> thanks thank you so much for listening to another episode of checkbox outreach our episodes are available on spotify on itunes you can find us on our website at checkboxoutreach.com as well as twitter at disrupt outreach